The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council and all the senate of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they didn't find them in the prison, so they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and said, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honour by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you were about to do with these men. For before these days, Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, Keep away from these men and let them alone, for if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they'd called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law. Work in us by your Spirit who inspired these words and by whose grace and power you have preserved them that they might stand before us this day as a witness to Jesus of whom they speak. And as we hear them in the coming minutes, would you both refresh and encourage and instruct us 
and conform us into the likeness of Christ so that we may faithfully continue as his body doing his ministry in the world which has been made for his glory. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take a seat. And let me say another welcome to you. I've had a chance to meet a few visitors and first-timers here today and a few returning new-ish comers. It's great to have you with us. We're glad you were able to join us today and um, hope very much that we'll get a chance to get to know you a little bit in the coming weeks and months. So what are you expecting from 2024? What's the one big story that's going to dominate the news headlines? What's the one big thing which is going to be pressed upon us as though it's the most important thing in the universe every day between now and November? It is, of course, the presidential election. And the intensity will ratchet up another notch tomorrow with the Iowa caucuses. And I wonder what you're expecting from our national conversation. It's a significant event. It's not intending to belittle it. What are you expecting our national conversation about this important matter to look like? Of course, we all know the answer. Our mainstream media will discuss the issues with their usual clarity, balance, even-handedness and integrity, which is to say, with the usual tsunami of partisanship and hysteria. Opposing parties will trade insults and will evade important questions and try and generate the right kind of viral video gotcha moment and avoid all the wrong ones, tripping upstairs and so on and so forth. And the subjects which really are quite important and ought to be part of our conversation will be the usual culture war issues, among others, uh, the trans movement, abortion, immigration, critical social justice ideology and everything else. And we can look forward to 11 months of one long shouting match as, once again, uh, we display uh, immaturity as a nation. Because, really, I think it's fair to say that the way that people talk, the way that a culture as a whole, the way a society talks about important issues is a helpful barometer of the maturity of that society, isn't it? You see it in families. The way that families discuss important issues, whether it's flying crockery across the kitchen or shouting matches across the dining table, or whether it's thoughtful conversation or uh, making time to listen to one another, the way that families talk about important things tells you about the maturity of that family. So it is with our nation. It's not always been this bad. I mean, there have been times in the past, haven't there, when um, really, I mean, America set the world an example of how to do nation forming. I remember reading the Federalist and Anti-Federalist papers for the first time you know, a few years ago and thinking that this, I mean, obviously they're published in newspapers originally in periodicals and so on, but it didn't feel like journalism. It felt like political philosophy being done and applied to the, the difficult issues of the day with which people were wrestling. Indeed, as recently as the 90s, I remember being a student at college in the 90s. In the 90s, you could have a conversation with somebody at a Western university with whom you disagreed on these issues. I remember having conversations with people about LGBT issues. It was only four letters in the alphabet soup at that point. 
Um, I remember having discussions about politics and discussions about all kinds of things. And sometimes they got animated, but they, nobody was ever cancelled, at least not where I was in the 90s. But you can't have those conversations in colleges anymore, and it seems increasing that you can't have them anywhere else either. Uh, and probably, if the trajectory since, I don't know, as far back as any of us can remember, but certainly over the last 10 years, if the trajectory is going to be continued, we're going to have, in 2024, the wrong kind of culture war fought with more intensity, more vitriol than ever before. And as usual, Christians will get drawn in. Christians, maybe even some of us, will be drawn into the personal and online shouting match that passes for political debate in our culture. Now, it's understandable, isn't it, right? Because we find ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place. We, we don't want to disengage, do we? Uh, our faith touches every aspect of life. It certainly touches all those aspects of life. We're looking for somebody who will represent us, however badly, somebody who will speak something like common Christian sense. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a candidate like that? But, of course, the usual danger is that... So we're trying to do what we might call, and we, and we do tend to think in these terms wrongly, as it turns out, in a subtle way. I'll come to it in a second. We, we think of ourselves as trying to shape the culture... And in fact, what happens is the culture starts to shape us. So we come to resemble precisely that world which is so foolish and immature in the ways that it discusses these important issues. And I don't know, do you feel that frustration? Like you, you feel the frustration of... Like there are, there are really good and not particularly complicated arguments that aren't being heard. Who is going to say the obvious things? And you feel like you want to no, contribute in whatever context it is, large or small. And yet at the same time you know that it's hard to do anything that makes a difference. It's hard to get involved in a shouting match without ending up shouting. Occasionally you find somebody you feel like this person, this mainstream or sort of mainstream political figure represents you and then they let you down. You ever felt that? And the temptation is just to become shrill and hysterical and just as angry as everybody else. So... What is supposed to do? What, what should the church do when it finds itself in a world that it, it's, we, we'd like to shape it? And we have some kind of a voice, but it's just, it's not obvious what exactly we should do, how exactly we should spend our time, how exactly we should use our words to seek to build something that has a chance of affecting the world out there. What should we do? Well, it turns out that there is a right way to do just that. There is a right kind of culture war. I hesitate to call it culture war, but I, want, I wanted to use that phrase in the title of today's sermon, the right kind of culture war, to try and encourage us all to displace from our consciousness whatever it is that we might be used to that goes by that name and replace it with something else. And it's exemplified, actually, in this passage of the book of Acts. I want to, I want to spend some time working through with you. you. You know where we've got to in the book of Acts so far. If you've, this is your first or second week with us, then um, a quick recap should suffice. This is the early days of the Christian church. Um, they've replaced Judas, chapter 1. The Spirit has descended, chapter 2. The church is still together in Jerusalem. 
They're meeting regularly in the temple precincts since the start, well, chapter 3, really, they go into the temple. All kinds of miraculous signs are being done, uh, and they're starting to provoke some opposition, mainly from the Jewish leadership, the Sadducees, who at that time uh, had uh, control of the priesthood and control of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the Jewish court and, and, and governing council. Peter and John are called in in chapter 5, they're released. Uh, sorry, chapter 4. Chapter 5, you've got this remarkable, uh, well, to end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, you start to see this community being formed, uh, and the generosity of Barnabas stands in stark contrast to the lies of Ananias and Sapphira. And then here they are again in chapter 5, and, and they're, you know, they're meeting daily in the temple, and the apostles are preaching and teaching, and chapter 5, verse 17, our, our passage begins with another episode of opposition, another episode of hostility, something else that serves to highlight that the world in which they're living and witnessing is not one that's friendly to them. And the, the hostility is more intense than before, whereas previously it was just Peter and John who were taken away here, it's a little different. The high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So what's going to happen now? Wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we found here some kind of blueprint or at least some kind of guidance which could help us to figure out what to do? If we were trying to shape a world in which we live, which we love, but is headed off a cliff so fast it's hard to see what could stop it, wouldn't it be wonderful if here we found some kind of guidance about that? And it's interesting, there are miraculous one-off events here, which we'll come to in a few moments, but I want to summarize, just get this in your head before we plunge into the detail. They did three things, which I think we can take home, and from which we could learn a great deal. First, they persisted in building their Christian community. I'm going to come to the significance of that in a second, because it's a bigger deal than we might realize. They were, secondly, uh, anticipating hostility and opposition. They don't really seem surprised by being carted off to the Sanhedrin again. But thirdly, they, they seem to anticipate that even some of their critics and some of their opponents might join them. And this picture of how they fought the culture war, really, I'll summarize it like this. They were creating an alternative. And more than that, they were, was, God was creating an alternative within them, and they were living out their alternative to the world's way of life in a way that's more significant than I think we normally realize. Let me just um, jump straight in with the, the longest, I'll spend most of my time on this, and then we'll come to the other points towards the end. They persisted, in spite of hostility, in spite of opposition, in not just passing on a message, but in building a culture of their own. They persisted in building a Christian community. Look with me, I'll jump into verse 17 again. The high priest rose up, he's, he's the uh, leader of the party of the Sadducees, it seems. The Sadducees are famous for, from the Gospels, they're the, the wealthy more secular-minded Jewish people who didn't believe in angels, spirits, resurrection, any of that stuff. It's hard to understand whether they really believed in God, but they had quite significant political power. 
And they actually controlled the priesthood at this time, in contrast to the Pharisees, who were mostly kind of lawyers and specialists in the Torah. Okay, and they arrested him and put him in the public prison. That was going to happen next, verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Like it's the most obvious thing in the world. Like you should have been expecting this, which of course nobody expects. Um, probably an echo of the book of Exodus. Most of the commentators seem agreed on that because of the angel. And of course that Exodus echo is really striking when you start to think about what they're doing here. What, why were the people brought out of slavery in Egypt? It wasn't just so they wouldn't be slaves anymore. It's so they could build something new. Let my people go that they may worship me. Or literally, the word is serve me, which includes formal worship, but it also includes every area of life. And they were to be taken to Sinai, the giving of the law, and then beyond Sinai to a land that they could make their own, a new world, so to speak, which they could build. And it's as though the um, angel of the Lord initiates another exodus. I was going to say second exodus, but it's hardly the second exodus. There are lots of exoduses in the Bible. There's probably also a bit of a poke at the Sadducees at this point, because, so Sadducees don't believe in angels, right? <laughs> okay, well, we could, <laughs> we could do something about that, couldn't we? And there's actually other ironic things through this passage. Verse 20 brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. What a mysterious phrase. Go and speak all the words of this life. What is it? Is it a reference to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life? Is it a reference to the resurrection message, which they've been preaching the resurrection of Jesus, which is partly what's gotten the Sadducees' nerves, obviously. Probably it's those things. I wonder whether it's also, it's got the same kind of package of double or triple meanings that it has in England. England, English. <laughs> and in England, we do speak England. English in, you figure it out, England. Um, speak to the people all the words concerning this life that they're going to be living. Go and speak to the people everything they'll need in order to conduct themselves in this life in union with the one who is life, and who has resurrection life. You see what the angel is doing, how Luke records it? He's piling these meanings on top of each other. Go and preach how the risen Lord of life is going to create a new life for this community. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So they go back into the temple, which is more significant than it might seem. I mean, the temple's a place where they were previously arrested. I mean, why go and cause trouble? It doesn't look like they're causing trouble, actually. What they're doing is going to the place where they know the people can find them. I've mentioned this a couple of times before, but ever since chapter 3, the temple, and a particular part of the court of the Gentiles near Solomon's portico, has been the place where they go. And what you've got is this picture of a, a community which starts to gather there every day to hear the word of the Lord preached by the apostles. So you can see it back in chapter 3, verse 11. After the lame man is healed, um, they all run into the region of the temple in the portico called Solomon's, and they're all astounded, and Peter preaches there. And what happens is, from that point on, up to this point, Solomon's portico is like the part of the temple, which is you know, a couple of dozen acres in size, huge area by this point in Israel's history. 
that's a place where the, the Christians go to hang out, and it's where everybody else goes to meet with them. And there are all these little hints here that you're seeing the formation of a community of either believers or people who are sufficiently intrigued to keep going back day after day after day to hear what these guys are talking about. So chapter 5, verse 12. We looked at this last week. Many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico. You need to imagine this growing community of people. There's teaching, obviously, from the apostles, but it's not just that. This is the community that you'd go to if you were lacking food. Because, end of chapter 4, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. Where did they bring it to? Solomon's portico, obviously. It becomes the geographical space where a new community of people, a new family, or extended family, is being formed. You can see how positive the community there is. Chapter 5, verse 26. When the captain and the officers go and try and bring them the second time, they can't bring them by force, they can't slap the handcuffs on them because they're afraid of the people. What does that tell you? It tells you the people who were there were positively disposed to the apostles. It, it, they're not angry mob Jesus haters throwing rocks. Not at this stage, they will do later. Crowds are fickle, you see. But at this stage, you've got this community of people who are part of a intrigued, um, growing family who are discovering that the Lord of life, who now has life, has come to give life and to teach you how to live yours. In fact, even after all this, that's where they go back to, verse 22, but not just the temple, right at the end of the, the passage today, every day, every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So not even this whatever sham of a trial can stop them. Can you see what's happening here? Often we characterize the book of Acts as um, it's the progress of the word of God. And there are emphases in the book along those lines. The word continue to multiply and spread, and the word is being preached which draws people to Christ. That's absolutely true. What you also see is this growing community of people who are building a, let's call it a Christian culture, because what is a Christian culture? Anyway, it is a, it's a community of people that's starting to shape their lives in every area of their life by the norms of the kingdom of Christ. It captures the mission of the church, actually. It's in microcosm, and it's small, because it's early. It's in Acts chapter 5. But what they're doing is bringing people together to live in a new way. To live in a way that stands out from the world around them. Sometimes it provokes conflict like this, and when it does, they kind of shrug their shoulders and go back to doing whatever they were doing. We must obey God rather than men. We have a job to do. And what it raises is a vitally important theological point. And I, I, I want to pause on this for a minute or two because I want to turn upside down our usual understanding of the relationship between church and culture. Let me explain what I mean. Here's how we normally think of culture. Isn't it like this? We're the church, right? 
and we believe in Jesus. And we're sort of stuck in the middle of this world and we've got to challenge the culture. We've got to uh, seek to confront the culture or change the culture around us, correct? And we think of all the things that are out there as basically things that are in the world that's distinct from the church, whether it's politics or the law or education or every other social institution. Here we are, and we, we sit scratching our heads and banging our heads against the brick wall occasionally, wondering how can we change that stuff out there, which we call culture, which is completely upside down. Think, just try and think biblically for a second. Forget what you think the instincts that we all have, that I've had, that I've spoken in this way. What is culture anyway? Culture is, from God's perspective, it's the fruit of what he's doing in the church. Culture is Genesis 1, 26 to 28 being worked out. Culture is the kingdom of Christ touching every area of our lives. What's happened out there is stolen property being misused. Of course, there are institutions out there, educational, political, legal, everything else. Just run back through your mental history book and ask yourself where those things all came from. What's happened is the previous generations of Christians have built schools, have built hospitals, have built universities, have built nations, have created legal systems, and have then apostatized or turned away from the Lord. And those things which are Christian are now being corrupted more and more. But culture belongs to the church. Frame the whole thing in a different way. Um, culture is a gift from God to the church for the sake of Christ. What, what God is doing in the world today, he is doing through Christ, which means in and through his church. Period. That's it. And what we see out there is second-hand borrowed capital, the source of which is not being acknowledged by the people who benefit from it. You with me? You, we, we now have a, a nation with laws that have some resemblance to Christian moral standards from which people who are not Christians benefit, but which are not acknowledged as having a Christian foundation and therefore the the content of them is tampered with and distorted with impunity. So marriage can now be between two men or two women. It's like, well, no, it can't, actually. <laughs> but the difference it makes to think of it like this is that everything that's going to end up out there that's good is going to start in here. It is in the church among the community of the people of God, that God is building a new Christian world. He's constantly building it and constantly rebuilding it because there's constantly need for it. There's constantly death in the culture. There's constantly 
apostasy and declension from the Word of God. And so there's constant need for renewal of the church by the Spirit of God so that we can not change that so much as be it. Can you see the difference? If you, if you, want, to have an, if you want an oak tree here in 100 years' time, you do not stand here complaining about all the beech trees and ash trees and elm trees over there. You plant an acorn, and then you wait, and you water it, and you nurture it, and then you plant a few more. And if we only had the patience, and that not that really the problem? How much of this is about impatience? If we only had the patience, if we could see history sped up so that a thousand years was like a day, we'd see, and a forest emerges. And we're, we have such a hard time realizing what our role is as Christians in the world because our time scale is so short because we all want to know how to fix November. Correct? <laughs> and, and so you feel powerless because you are powerless to fix November. I mean, maybe you're not. Maybe we pray and God does something amazing. Maybe. Sometimes he does. Sometimes an angel of the Lord will appear. Sometimes. But not all the time. Meanwhile, if you want to see an oak tree here, you plant an acorn. So, some examples. I mean, it's the obvious things that I've talked about with you a thousand times. How do you change the world? Well, you're sitting next to your daughter right there. Run the clock forward a thousand generations. And by God's grace, what could she and her offspring become? So how are you going to change the world? What, what's the seed you're going to plant? And, and you do that, that same thought experiment in all the usual areas of life that we've talked about a thousand times. In the way that we relate to one another as believers within this family, in the way that we give ourselves to our work, our daily labor, in the way that we spend time with our children and other people's children, the way that men and women seek marriage by pursuing holiness, and the way that they approach marriage by showing honor, gentlemen, to this lady, and displaying wisdom, ladies, in the choice of men you would even give the time of day to, which acts as some fantastic incentive for them to get their act sorted out. If your father went back to him and just said, well, she kind of likes you, but um, I'm not sure about you yet. You don't seem to be able to hold down a job. I think you should get one. Come back in a couple of years. I, I was even thinking about this. A friend of mine uh, sent me an article about uh, artificial intelligence, which is apparently a thing. <laughs> um, and the article was really interesting because it was trying to predict what was going to happen and all the different ways in which artificial intelligence was going to change the landscape of our economy. Now, you see, what, what it missed out, there were two things it missed out. The first thing is it missed out the, uh, the big elephant in the room. Like, what is artificial intelligence really going to be used for? The answer is it's going to be used for all the same things that Web 1.0 was used for in the early days. 30% of all video, 35% of all downloads, is it 40% of all websites? We all know what they're all for. I'm not a prophet nor a son of a prophet, but maybe, maybe this year is the year that the AI industry owns up to what it's actually doing, especially once you've got um, 
synthetic video and synthetic audio, and you can create... Well, I just, uh, try not to use your imagination. So that's the first thing that this article didn't even mention. But the second thing it didn't mention, there will be a counter-rebellion. See, the entire world of artificial intelligence is a disembodied world, isn't it? It's a, it's a human-created world. It's actually like so many of our other ways of interacting electronically. It's, it's not embodied. It's not actually people. And half the time, it's literally not actually people because it's a bot you're talking to. So there will be a rebellion from die-hard culture warriors who get together to read books made of paper, who refuse to have conversations in, about any difficult or tense issue except when you can look that man in the eye and actually respond to him. There will be a rebellion from people who listen to old vinyl. You think I'm joking? But they're, they're, <laughs> I know, you're like, I love old vinyl. There will be a rebellion from people who know that God made this physical world. There will be a rebellion led by people who, I don't know, smoke their own meat and roast their own coffee. <laughs> because it will be led by people who are in love with this physical world and for all the strengths of AI might help you to do your logistics better or write better code, great. They know that's not the world, and we are building something different here, where people matter, where things matter. Where we get together every week and pour over the details of an ancient text, which we believe to be inspired by a God whom we cannot see, and then we eat bread and drink wine. Are we mad? No, we're rebels. Reinstating the glory of this physical world and the preciousness of the physical people who live within it. We should probably speed up on our way through this passage. Um, it, it gets kind of more hilarious as the uh, verses 21 down to 25 unfold. You know, they, 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 they're all assembled for the court hearing. They go to the cells and they can't find the prisoners. It's a little bit embarrassing. But in the final, well, 60% of the passage, you see these other two strands of, of what the uh, apostles show us about how to rebuild, so to speak. And I deliberately only left a few minutes. I want to just walk through these briefly. In planting the acorn, in beginning the rebuilding within the church, they anticipated the possibility of opposition. You notice they seem remarkably unsurprised. There are no howls of outrage or dismay or horror or anxiety. They are, they are not taken by force in verse 26. They go willingly. It's like, fair enough. It's, I think I mentioned this last week. If, if you know that death is victory, you gen, genuinely can't be beaten. And so it's like, okay, well, we'll come with you. 
And then verse 27, they had brought them, they set before the council, the high priest questioned them, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet you've filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. A side point, by the way, this name, verse 28, it's as though the high priest can't bring himself to say the name of Jesus. This man, this name, and of course it's, it's ironic again because the phrase the name was how some of the ancient Hebrews spoke about the living God. It's used again, doubling down on the irony, in verse 40, charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Verse 41, they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dis dishonor for the name. It's as though... The Lord manages to extract from the mouth of this rebellious Sadducean high priest a profession of the divinity of Jesus. It's hilarious. It's probably a fulfillment of Luke 12 and of Luke 21 as well. The, um, uh, don't worry about what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will give you words to say. That's why I suspect the, the previous hearing, they thought they were uneducated men. It's because they hadn't got a prepared speech. They didn't obey the canons of rhetoric from the first century. The day may come, yeah, the, the day may come when you, in the course of just planting seeds, building Christian community, when you're hauled off to some 21st century Sanhedrin somewhere, don't worry. I mean, don't go looking for it. Please don't go looking for it. It's an awful lot of aggravation. But the, but the day may come. Don't worry. The Lord will give you the words you need to say. Don't be surprised. But meanwhile, we're just going to get on with planting trees, right? Finally, briefly, they anticipated that their opponents might join them. This is a remarkable uh, moment. Verse 33 uh, the Sanhedrin hears the words of um, Peter and the apostles, and they're enraged and wanted to kill them. But, this is really remarkable, a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to the men to be put outside for a little while. Now, Gamaliel is the guy who was who Paul, so Saul, soon to be Paul's tutor. In a few weeks or months or years, whatever the timeline is, Gamaliel is going to see one of his finest students become a Christian. That's going to be interesting. Nobody really knows for sure what happened to Gamaliel. There are all kinds of traditions about him becoming a Christian, but it's not recorded anywhere in Scripture. What does he say? But put these guys outside, and he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Then after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. You see the subtext, right? We've seen these things before. What normally happens is some leader rises up, leads some kind of rebellion, something or other. Then he dies, and all his followers go, nah, I'm going fishing. And it's over. You see the subtext, which Gamaliel now makes explicit. If Jesus is just another failed rebel like them, expect the same to happen. You won't need to do anything, guys. Just let history take its course. 
So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this understanding is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Because it turns out that when the disciples started saying, you know, we're going back fishing, Jesus wasn't done with them. No failed rebel he who dies and his followers are scattered. Remember? Lord of life. Preach all the words of this life. Now, here's the fascinating thing. Gamaliel, a Pharisee, which incidentally, uh, you notice the texture within the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, angels, spirits, any of that stuff. Probably don't know whether they believed in God in the sense God is a spirit, right? Pharisees, sticklers for the law of Moses. And we are used to lumping them together as the bad guys. And with some justification, like in Mark 7, for example. The, fa- the Pharisees and their scribes are the ones who get a kicking from Jesus. Not a little kicking, but they get a kind of verbal thumping from Jesus for um, their, uh, their reading of the law of Moses and the Corban regulations and, all those, and cleaning the outside of the pot but not being concerned about their hearts, which are far from the Lord. But you, we mustn't make that mistake of just lumping the Jews all together because here you've got a Pharisee who says, hold on a second. We will be able to tell if this is from God, not by the teaching. How will we be able to tell if this is a work of God? It will be if their disciples, the disciples of this Jesus character, who they keep saying is alive, we'll be able to tell if it's from God if these disciples aren't scattered. The thing that would convert Gamaliel would be the formation of a faithful, stable, God-glorifying Christian community. The thing that would convert the Pharisee would be a Christian culture that begins here and doesn't die. Because there are Christians here who have realized that their job is not to go and shout at the Sanhedrin, but just to go back to their brothers and sisters in Christ and continue building what the Spirit of God is building through them. So what are you looking forward to in 2024? Genuinely, you can safely ignore most of those headlines. You know you can. You'll discover who's won. Don't worry. Okay? What you can't safely ignore, what you cannot safely ignore, is this community from which God is building a new world. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for your grace in sustaining your church through its darkest times. And we thank you for these, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who in these early days where they must have felt vulnerable and small and weak and intimidated, nonetheless continued to meet, to hear your word, to care for one another, and to build that which we are heirs of today. Father, there is a great deal that needs to be rebuilt. Would you equip us to begin or to continue the work of doing so? And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.